Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey folks, is the Constitution considered a Christian document? Were all of the founders interested in the teachings of Christ, or did his teachings contradict what the foundation of America was or is about? Today, backed by popular demand, Mike Gaddy is on the show. Mike came on to talk about secession on episode 24 and is gracious enough to come and talk about today's topic as well. This is a topic I've been wanting to cover for quite some time now because it seems to keep coming up with uh, the Christian right and I think it's something that is going to be a hot topic for years to come. And Mike has the understanding of the founding and how they were when it came to Christianity. And I wanted to have him back on to talk about this. Would you rather serve God than serve Caesar? You feel me? I'm just trying to live what he said. I'm just trying to live what he said. I said I will take what to the head. Go ahead. Someone's safe to say that I'm bad. safe to say that I'm Mike, how are you doing today? Uh, doing very well, uh, Craig. Uh, thanks so very much for uh, having me uh, come back again. Yeah, when we did the uh, episode on secession, and I didn't know what to expect from folks when we released that because I know your teaching style and I appreciate your teaching style and the knowledge you have, but what you talked to us about in that episode was well received from our regular listeners, and they wanted to hear more from Michael Gaddy. And so I'm happy that you agreed to come back on and talk about this topic, because like I said in the introduction, it's something that I've wanted to cover since probably since we started this project, because it's something that I wrestled with, too, in my path to where I am today as a Christian anarchist. And I think the Christian right tends to view the Constitution as like it's God-breathed. And I don't know if I'm overstating that or not, do you think that's an overstatement or? Well, Craig, uh, over the years, you know, delving into this study for at least the past three decades, I have found quite a few differing opinions among people of the same classification, the people who call themselves Christian conservatives and what have you. And I can remember going way back when I first started doing my programs and uh, I would ask the people at uh, my classes, uh, do you think that the Constitution was inspired by God? And, you know, the great majority says yes. So that was something on my own that I felt like I had to delve into as a historian to be not sold on either side before I went in to look at it objectively and to let the, uh, as an investigation should go, which what research is, is to let that investigation and let the facts lead me to a conclusion rather than the other way around. And what did you find? I mean, what have you found with, with what you've studied, just simply before we get into it? Well, one of the things I found was, and, and to kind of elaborate on that point a little bit, I think if any of us have ever been called to jury duty, one of the first questions that the judge or prosecutor or someone will ask you is, do you have any connection or any bias to anyone involved in this uh, case or to anyone who might be related to someone who uh, is involved in this case? And if you answer in the affirmative that you do, you're excluded from the jury. So if we are going to look at history objectively, I believe that we have to uh, bring those exact requirements on ourselves and, again, let the facts, as if we were investigating uh, you know, a crime, and this is certainly not a crime, but if we were investigating a crime, we would have to be led by the evidence and not by emotions. And I think, especially in this issue, there is a huge problem with most people because they go into this with a preconceived notion. And uh, they're, uh, they're, they're firmly determined that uh, no matter how many facts you present, it's not going to change their mind. see that quite a bit. It seems like it's getting worse every day, too. I mean, you could, you could present logic and facts with somebody. And the majority of folks don't want to hear it. It does not 
compute in their brain because it goes against their narrative. It's something they've been fed. And I think that's something that's very frustrating for me, especially with the stuff we've witnessed over the past year and a half now, I guess, almost a year and a half now with the COVID stuff. And you could you could lay down, well, what about this? But if And then you hear things like, well, science is settled. It's settled science. Well, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound like science if it's settled. If we can't question it, is it really science? And I think it's something that we can go about with this conversation today as well, that we should be able to question this to figure out, is the Constitution God-breathed? Is the Constitution a Christian document? Because there's a misconception among the Christian right, in my opinion, that all the founders were Christians. And I don't believe that to be true. Now, a majority of them were, and they, or maybe they just spoke to it like they were. Is that, is that accurate or am I missing something with, uh, with, with the founding with that? Because they talked, I mean, you, if you read some of the stuff, they talk about God. And I remember this, you said something when I was on your show and you said something that was very, very true that I never really, really thought of. And when they talk about God, what, who, what God are they talking about? Are we talking about the God of the Bible or are they talking about another God? We don't really know for sure. Well, uh, Craig, the one thing, uh, the way that we have to, uh, to compile the evidence is we have to go to what did they say? What did they say in letters to each other? What did they say at various conventions? You know, the other aspects. I think we have to take it in a, uh, a collective sense to find out exactly. Were the founders religious? Yes, very much so. But is religion Christianity? I, I think a lot of people get caught up on the fact that they believe that if someone mentions God, that they are automatically a Christian. And that was my point when you were on my program, and that is not always true. So the thing that I noticed in really delving into and reading thousands and thousands of letters uh, between people who were founders, people who were instrumental in the founding, and looking to other aspects, we know, number one, that a lot of people came to America, some even you know, putting themselves into indentured servitude for years to get here, many to escape religious persecution in England. So we have to factor that into the very fabric of the people who came to this country. And so we know that to be true. We also know if you go back and read, and I've done quite a bit of research on this, that many times the Bible is mentioned among the founders uh, or those we call founders and the people in the founding era. And one of the things noticed is like, for instance, we've got John Adams who says that there was no greater promotion of a republic or no greater book of a republic than the Bible. And of course, John Adams was not a Christian. And he, uh, in his last letters to Jefferson, he was very proud of being a Unitarian. So we have to look at this and we have, there's two phrases we have to entertain is, and that is monotheism. And are the people believing in one God or they believe in Trinitarianism? And the three, you know, God, the Father, and the Holy Ghost. And there's a difference in those beliefs. But among, the, among those people we call the founding generation, the uh, Bible was mentioned more than John Locke, more than Montesquieu, was mentioned more than quite a few of the people, Vattel. It was mentioned more than those people. And uh, it's interesting to look at what they actually pointed to, Craig. The most popular verses that were quoted among these founders in all of their writings were uh, 26th chapter of Leviticus and the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. There were very, very few mentions of the New Testament at all. And ironically, the one part of the New Testament that was most mentioned by the founders was Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. So I think the, that is very indicative when we start to think about this, that these people actually mentioned the Bible as often as they did, but they were much more in tune at that time to the Old Testament than the New Testament. 
That makes sense. And before we get into this, I want to ask you something because in our in our conversation leading up to this and, and preparing for this episode, you told me that this is a topic that is very important to you. And what what about this topic? Why, why is it so important to you to talk about this today? Well, you know, if we believe something false, then that's going to affect our decision making process over and over and over again. So it's important to me. That's one of the important things to me about history. That's why I love history so much, is what is the actual truth? Because if your decisions are made on a false narrative, they're never going to bear good fruit. So your decisions must be made on factual evidence. And that's why I went back to the old jury, uh, picking a jury. And I believe that you have to look at the evidence, the evidence as presented. And I think that is critical in this, uh, especially when it comes to what we consider to be our founding document. Although I do not call it our founding document, I think the Declaration of Independence was our founding document. But uh, many people refer to this as our founding document, and it is what our government is based on. So I think a thorough understanding of that is a a pathway to true history is a pathway to good decision. All right. So in our conversation leading up to this, you sent me a quote, and I don't know if you think I should read the whole thing, but it's a, a quote by uh, Gary North. And to start this topic off, it says, the ratification of the United States Constitution in 1787 to 88 was not an act of covenant renewal. It was an act of covenant breaking. The substitution of a new covenant in the name of a new God and in, in God, it's lowercase g. And this was not understood at the time, but it has been understood by the humanists who have written the story of the Constitution. Nevertheless, they have not presented the history of the Constitutional Convention as a deception that was produced by a conspiracy. The spiritual heirs of the original victims of the deception remain unaware of the deception's origins. Most of the heirs go about their business as if nothing unique had happened just as the original victims did after 1788. But a few of the heirs rail against the humanistic historians who have told the story of the new American nation, a grand experiment in which the God of the Bible was first formally and publicly abandoned by any Western nation. They've argued that there was no deception, that America is still a Christian nation, that the Constitution in principle was and remains a Christian document, and it is only the nefarious work of the U.S. Supreme Court the American Civil Liberties Union that has stripped the Constitution of its original Christian character. There's no greater deception than one which continues to deceive the, vic- the victims over two centuries after the deed was done. I want you to talk about that a little bit. Well, if I could, Craig, uh, I want to get to that. But if I could, let me lay a bit of groundwork here. Is that OK? Yes, sir. Let's look at how we ended up with this constitutional convention to begin with. I mentioned earlier that there were people, obviously, who came to this country to avoid religious prosecution. But if we think that all of the people who came here to avoid religious prosecution, that that was the reason all of them came, we would be, you know, deceiving ourselves. Because there were quite a few people came from England to the United States for profit. There was a Uh, land here where money could be made. And so they were involved in a commercial enterprise. They didn't worry about, they didn't come here to avoid religious prosecution. They came here to make money. And they did. And and they were making quite a bit of money, which, uh, you know, King George wanted more of through increased taxation, uh, which led to the Stamp Act of 1765, which led to eventually to the revolution. So we have to understand that there were there were two elements here, that we had the people who really wanted to be in America because they wanted to be free from religious prosecution. We had other people who were here strictly for commercial uh, reasons and for their commercial advantage. So what we have to understand when we look at the Constitution is who controlled the Constitutional Convention. Was it the people who came here? seeking religious freedom, or were it, was it the people who came here for commercial reasons to enrich themselves and to enrich the people around them? That is something that has to be considered. We cannot come to a logical conclusion about this 
until we understand that. So why was there a constitutional convention? We had the Articles of Confederation had been in place for about six years, a little over six years. They had been in place. Most of the people that we call Federalists had taken over and won over most of the legislatures of the majority of the states. So we have the Federalists, or, uh, you know, in many cases, uh, some of those people were monarchists. And John Mercer, a delegate from Maryland, actually made a list of people, and he put it and sent it back to Maryland, of the people he felt were at the Constitutional Convention to create a monarchy. So we have to understand and to take in all of these things. And for people to make a decision on the Constitution without knowing all of these factors is an effort in futility because you're going to ha- be forced to make an emotional decision and not a logical decision. So let's look at what in the Articles of Confederation, which was written by John Dickinson, who is another man who said, talked about the Bible being a, the sign of a great republic, a book of a republic. So John Dickinson was the author of the Articles of Confederation. Now, a great historian by the name of Merrill Jensen, who uh, wrote extensively in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, I believe, Merrill Jensen said that the Articles of Confederation were written by the generation that had just been involved in and had just decided that they would revolt from the most powerful nation on earth in search of freedom and liberty. So those were the people that were that had written the Articles of Confederation. Now, the Articles of Confederation, I mean, contain, I'm sorry, many of the things that the people today wish they had in their government. The Articles of Confederation had uh, rotation, as Thomas Jefferson called it, which was term limits. You didn't have professional politicians. You didn't have a man who had been in Washington for 47 years running for president. That was impossible under the Articles of Confederation. Nancy Pelosi would have been impossible. Charles Schumer, Mitch McConnell, all of these career politicians would not have been able to exist under the Articles of Confederation. Now you have to ask yourself, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, let me stop let me stop you real quick because that's an interesting point because I I I hear something hear these things about term limits quite a bit. And you know that at one time I was involved in the uh, John Birch Society and one thing they were always against were term limits because they believed that these folks could be voted out of office if the people had any kind of working knowledge of the Constitution. Now, I don't know where I stand on that anymore. Like I said earlier, I don't really care anymore about some of this stuff, but I didn't know that about the Articles of Confederation. So that's an interesting point because we wouldn't have Nancy Pelosi or Schumer or McConnell or uh, any of these career politicians. So maybe it is a good point because people don't really have any interest in learning the Constitution and voting based on the Constitution. They vote based on emotion like you were speaking earlier. But I I don't know. I wanted to bring that up because that's interesting. I never really thought about that as far as the Articles of Confederation is concerned. Well, one of the things that I always remember with this, Craig, is I stop and think about what Thomas Jefferson said. And Thomas Jefferson said rotation or term limits in today's vernacular, he said that rotation allowed the people to make themselves available of the genius of their community. So do we believe that in the state of Connecticut, there were not people smarter there than Joe Biden (laughs) as a senator? Uh, Do we believe that there are people in California who are not as smart as Nancy Pelosi? Do we believe that we have the cream of the crop as far as intelligence goes in our political offices. Jefferson said that you don't know about what genius is in your community without rotation. So the Articles of Confederation said that you could not serve in any elected office for more than three years out of every six. Well, another thing that the Articles of Confederation provided for, which certainly the Constitution did not, was instant recall. So if you were a a campaign for an office under the Articles of Confederation, you campaigned for Congress and you ran for Congress, 
and you got there and didn't do what you promised the people that you would do, you could be instantly recalled. They didn't have to wait for the next election. They could say, hey, Jack, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. Come on back. We'll send somebody else in your place. Well, now, do you think that there is a politician in Washington today who would agree to that? No. And I think it's funny, too. And it always comes up, the, the term limit stuff. It, Ted Cruz talks about it quite a bit. But man, he's a career politician. Why is him? Why is he always talking about term limits when he has himself has set himself up as a career politician? Do you think he's really interested in term limits, or is it just something he's paying lip service to to try to get people to listen to him talk? Well, Craig, the greatest example of this that I always remember, at least in my mind, was uh, happened in uh, Arkansas back when you and I both were living there. Well. Uh, I was a proponent of term limits. I had looked at several instances of term limits, even did a little campaigning uh, for a term limits bill. And I remember a uh, member of the Arkansas Senate who posted on Facebook that the people who were pushing for term limits just didn't understand what they were talking about because it took people a uh, a period of time to find out uh, what was actually going on in politics, to learn the ropes and all this other stuff, which I think is the very reason we shouldn't let them stay there. But he made that statement on Facebook, and then he followed it up with a, a wonderful comment. He said, you know, it took me a year to even find out where the bathrooms were at the state house. So I sent him, I sent him a response. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to uh, say his name, but his initials are Alan Clark. So <laughs> I, I, I sent him a, a on Facebook. I said, well, Senator, if it took you a year to find the bathrooms, I'm not sure you should ever be there at all. <laughs> and so I was promptly blocked on Facebook. So that to me is the term limits thing. Ask any crooked politician if he believes in term limits and, and then just uh, see what he said. <laughs> it's just they don't want term limits. But the thing that was stifling the Federalist or the Monarchist or the Nationalist, uh, and there were factions of those three together, uh, the thing that was really stymieing them and all of their proposals, especially their most sacred proposal, which was unlimited taxation. They could not acquire that under the Articles of Confederation. They tried, they tried, they tried. Even when they controlled the various state legislatures, their efforts at unlimited taxation from unlimited sources kept failing. And the reason for that was Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation, which said very succinctly that no bill, no piece of legislation could pass unless all of the states agreed to it. So in Article 13, it locked up these Federalist Nationalist Monarchists to a point of view to where they could not get pushed what they wanted to do. At one time, they had it down. The only state that was standing out was Rhode Island. So the Congress sent a delegation to go to Rhode Island to bully the Rhode Island legislature into approving their tax scheme. And so uh, Rhode Island had been holding out. And so why this delegation is on their way to go there and to bully the state into accepting this, the state of Virginia, their legislature said, well, you know what, if we have to bully people into doing stuff, maybe that's not what we need. If they're not willing to accept it themselves, to being coerced into doing something they do not believe in is, is, is bad. We shouldn't be involved in this. So Virginia pulled out. So then they had two states that wouldn't go along with it. And at this point is when the Federalist, Nationalist, Monarchists realized they were not going to be able to get their program of taxation through with the Articles of Confederation. And they started a campaign for a new constitution or uh, they couldn't call it that because they knew the people wouldn't agree. So they called for a convention to amend the Articles of Confederation. So this was their motivation for the Constitution was unlimited taxation. Is that what you're saying? Well, what we have here is we have to stop and ask ourselves a very simple question. 
did the people who went to Philadelphia in 1787, did they go there to guarantee the rights of the people and to protect the rights of the people and to amend the Articles of Confederation to provide for certain commercial enterprises? Or did they go there to destroy the Articles of Confederation and give them a new constitution of unlimited powers? You have to ask yourself that question. That has to be the question which is answered if you're going to understand this. And so there are a lot of answers that are offered to that situation just right up front. The first thing we know is that when they got to Philadelphia, In 1787, in May, when they got there and they started their convention, the first thing they did was make this convention super secret for 50 years. No one could could say anything about what went on. They couldn't even talk to their people who elected them to be there, which Luther Martin was very upset about. He said, you mean I can't eat the people in Maryland who trusted me and sent me here? I can't even talk to them about what's going on here. So everything was secrecy. They had armed guards at the door so people couldn't get in to find out what they were doing. They put blankets up over the windows so that people couldn't hear what was taking place inside. And this is in the summertime. Believe me, they didn't have air conditioning. This could not have been comfortable. Now, here's the question that I ask at this point, Craig. Does that sound like a group of Christians to you? Not at all. That's what I was going to say is because... We know that, and it's a phrase that people on the libertarian side, they'll say taxation is theft. So we know that the Bible says that thou shalt not steal. So if they were trying to change or or go to the Constitution away from the, the Articles of Confederation because they could not have unlimited power or unlimited taxation, they were not acting very Christ-like in wanting to be able to tax us to our knees. If they, if they saw fit, which they do already. So I think we answer the question, is, is the Constitution a Christian document? Well, there's uh, some other points I would like to make along those lines, which uh, will find their conclusion in a question. Uh, we know on several instances that the Quakers in Philadelphia provided a written proposal to the Constitutional Convention They gave this written proposal to two people, two delegates, Tench Cox and Benjamin Franklin. And what the Quakers, who are considered to be Christians, what the Quakers were asking the convention to do was to outlaw slavery. And again, they gave this to Tench Cox, who was the president of their foundation. So Tench Cox and Benjamin Franklin, we know it's documented carried to the Constitutional Convention, of course, it was in their city of Philadelphia, they carried this to that convention, a petition to end slavery. It was never read. Neither Franklin nor Tench Cox ever read that proclamation for consideration to the Constitutional Convention. Did they not read it themselves or they just didn't read it to the folks there at the convention? I can't answer that. Craig, because I don't know. Okay. Anything I would say on that would be speculation. The thing we do know from the records of the convention is it was never read to the convention, which was the request of the Quakers of Philadelphia. We know, and speaking on our last, uh, the last time you were on the show, you talked about how slavery is immoral, and I think you, maybe you said it was a, uh, it was maybe it was Luther Martin said it was it's a crime against heaven. We know slavery is is evil. These folks were asking them to abolish slavery, and they didn't even read it. Well, that is correct. Again, when they were discussing slavery, anti-slavery was not discussed. Abolishing slavery was not discussed. This petition to end slavery was not discussed. So when slavery did come up, when slavery was discussed, here is what Luther Martin. Now, there is no record of Luther Martin being a Christian. As a matter of fact, there's considerable evidence to the contrary. He was a known abuser of alcohol. Uh, Many referred to him. Of course, he was the longest sitting attorney general in the history of the United States, state attorney general from Maryland. 
probably the most brilliant legal mind at the convention. That's why most people have never heard of him. Now, that's Luther Martin, folks, not Martin Luther. Two totally different people. But here is what Luther Martin said when they brought up slavery. Now, listen to this. He said, the revolution, speaking of the war they had just won against England, was grounded in defense of the natural God-given rights possessed by all mankind. But this constitution is an insult to that God who views with equal eye the poor African slave and his American slave master, unquote. That's 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 incredible, and I've I've always said, well, not always, but the longer I've gone with this, even people that don't don't believe in God, atheists, for for instance, will act more Christ-like than even Christians do sometimes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a, a great quote by uh, by Gandhi, and I hope I'm saying it correctly, but he said, "I I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christianity." What Martin Luther was saying, even if he was not a a Christian, a professing Christian. He was accurate in what he was saying. And I think even people that don't follow Christ can be more Christ-like than even professing Christians, which is a huge frustration. <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason people run from the church these days. Well, Craig, in that context of what Luther Martin just said, and he didn't get any affirmative position with him when he made that statement, well, let me correct that. He got one affirmative statement from George Mason. George Mason agreed with him. George Mason said it was a crime against heaven. So here were two men, neither who was known to be Christian, who brought up the absolute insanity of slavery. And did the other Christians there, did they join forces with Mr. Martin and Mr. Mason? No, no one stood up for them. So here I go back to the question, were the people at the Constitutional Convention there as delegates to protect the rights of the people, or were they there to protect their financial interest? To me, that is the point that we have to keep asking. It seems like, especially when, if they came here for financial interest and not for freedom or religious freedom, you know, even the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself, but the love of money. And if that's what they were after and not actually after religious freedom, there you have it. Well, after Luther Martin made his statements and after George Mason chimed in with his crime against heaven, then several Federalists, monarchists, nationalists, whatever you want to call them, they call themselves Federalists, so we'll call them Federalists. Uh, they then brought forward, including Oliver Ellsworth and Robert Livingston of New York, and both of them said, we are not here to discuss moral or religious issues. We are here for commerce. One of them said, if we are here for any other reason, I would move that we just stop the proceeding. Hey folks, Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors have no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page. And you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, and send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. Let's talk about Samuel Bryan for a second. You sent me, uh, he said something about the cloak of divinity. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. Uh, Samuel Bryan, who wrote as the Anti-Federalist Sentinel, whose father, George Bryan, was just as much a patriot in my mind. Uh, to these gentlemen, everything was about liberty and freedom. Uh, of course, there is very little to be found about their religious background in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Nothing that I can find. But I look at what they had to say about the Constitution. And writing as an anti-federalist, uh, Samuel Bryan would say, 
uh, about the ratification, that to work towards ratification, that the Federalists will have to cloak their instrument with divinity to get the American public to buy it. I think about something that was written in 1788, and I look at what I hear today when people start telling me uh, that this is a, you know, this is a divine document. And I think to myself, well, Samuel Bryan saw this about 230 years ago. And we know today that we have people, and I refer to them as charlatans. We have people, uh, Craig, the easiest thing to get somebody to believe is what they want to believe. The easiest thing to get some somebody to believe is something that they feel comfortable believing. And there are people who have gone out and made themselves small fortunes selling to the churches of America how this constitution was a Christian document founded by Christians and written and framed by Christians. Well, you know, one of the first things that sent me on this path, Craig, was a guy that I that is just one of my heroes, and that's Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry, in the writings between the people we call founders or framers, between them, they almost spoke to a man of Patrick Henry's devout Christian beliefs. Not religious. They specifically said Christian beliefs. Well, now, here's a question. The first thing that sent me down this uh, rabbit hole was when Patrick Henry refused to attend the Constitutional Convention in 1787, although he was uh, the only person who got more votes to be a delegate in Virginia than Patrick Henry was George Washington. And Patrick Henry said, I smell a rat leaning toward a monarchy in Philadelphia. And he refused to attend. Then when the uh, Constitutional Convention, I mean, Ratification Convention began, no one spoke against the ratification of this document more than Patrick Henry did. So if this it was indeed a Christian document, why did the most devout Christian among the founders themselves, admittedly by the founders themselves, why did Patrick Henry fight this, Craig? Did he not get the memo? <laughs> maybe, maybe he had, maybe he had a people's best interest in mind. It's did did, did they not send him? And it's interesting to me. Did they not send him more than once the Constitution to sign on, even at his own home? I, I, rem- I think I read this in the book uh, Lion of Liberty. It's a book you introduced me to. And did they not send him documents to sign or try to? It seemed like it was very important for to them to get Patrick Henry on their side. They tried more than once to get him to sign on to it, and he he kept refusing. Well, when you look at the letters, the letters James Madison, especially between James Madison and George Washington, it was just Madison was saying, if we don't get Patrick Henry on board here, we are in serious trouble. This man carries too much influence. You know, they invented fake news. So they published in several of the leading newspapers, especially in New England, that Patrick Henry had indeed decided to support the Constitution. And there's nothing anywhere near true about that. So they said by their own actions that they were tremendously worried about Patrick Henry. And yes, uh, there is, you know, something I can't confirm, but through one source. And I, I, I trouble about things that only have one source. But uh, Patrick Henry was even offered perhaps a position on the first Supreme Court if he would endorse the Constitution. And we know Edmund Randolph sold out for U.S. Attorney General because he had refused to sign the Constitution at Philadelphia in September of 1787. And then he became a great proponent of the Constitution uh, after a few letters from George Washington telling him how fantastic he would be as the first U.S. Attorney General. So the political intrigues of today are no different, really, than they were in 1787-88. The same thing was going on. They published false letters from Daniel Shays. They published false letters from several people. So if your document is inspired by God, why do you have to lie to get people to accept it? When you spoke of this being a new covenant, it flies in the face. And I know you're familiar with 1 Samuel 8. It flies in the face of 1 Samuel 8 because God was very, very clear what was going to happen if you 
chose another king other than him. And we see it uh, coming true today. And there's another quote that you sent me, Daniel Driesback. Am I saying his last name right? Yes. He is a, a professor at American University, probably one of the most uh, uh, well-versed men on the relationship between the Bible and the Constitution and the founding era. Uh, very well versed, probably uh, more than most anybody out there on the uh, on the scene today. When this quote you sent me, this quote you sent me, I'm going to read it, and it's it's very interesting. He says, "One of the most striking features of the United States Constitution of 1787 is the absence of an explicit acknowledgement of the deity or the Christian religion. The invocation of a deity to authenticate or attest to divine sanction for public acts or decrees is a tradition that predates." the Christian era, and is found in non-Western as well as Western cultures. In this respect, the Constitution departed from the pattern of most public documents of the day, the Declaration of, of the Causes, a necessity of taking up arms, 1775, the Declaration of Independence, 1776, the Articles of Confederation, 1781. Virtually all state constitutions and other official documents are replete with complaint or with claims of Christian devotion and supplication for the supreme being. However, the federal constitution makes no such religious affirmation or declaration, even of the perfunctory kind that was typical of other documents written by the framers. This omission is remarkable since despite any revolutionary order of the time, there was little sentiment that the new republic order broke with the prevailing Christian traditions of the American people. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I, th I think that's, a, that's very key into what we're talking about today. Absolutely, Craig. There was a mention of the supreme being in the Articles of Confederation and the other documents that you mentioned, especially you know in the Declaration of Independence. We are endowed by our creator. It goes into detail. But it was never proposed to be included in the Constitution. Now, Craig, Let's ask ourselves a very relevant question here. If we had 55 Christians who got together and proposed a document, do you think they might include something about God? You would think so. Well, I know a man who teaches that this document was a Christian document, and he says that the proof is in the fact that when they listed the date, they said the year of our Lord. That's the extent of his teachings on that. But here's something I think even more important, Craig, and this, this was something I wanted to bring up. If this was indeed a Christian document, and if this was a gathering of Christians for May, uh, latter part of May, June, July, August, into middle September, do you think at some point during all of these meetings, almost daily meetings, of course, they did take some time off, but it, all of these meetings for that entire period of the summer, do you think that there might have started at least one session with prayer? But they didn't do that. No. How many times do you think you could get a group of p professing Christians to meet for anything that they considered as important? as the government, as important as a constitution, to not ask for God's blessings on their actions. Or some guidance. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's just, if, if, this is, if it was that important to them, yeah, some guidance on what they were about to do. Right. Well, the thing of it was, is it was brought up on the 28th of June. So we're a month into the Constitutional Convention. Things weren't going real well. They were having huge arguments over uh, representation, whether it should be by population or whether it should be by state or how it should be. But on the 28th of June, Franklin noted that daily prayers that had been held in the first constitutional convention and commented on the lack of the same in their present venue. And this, uh, I'm, what I'm about to read to you, can be found in the book, The Real Benjamin Franklin, on pages uh, 258 through 259. Now, here is what Franklin said. This is documented at the convention. And he said, and I quote, In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for the divine protection 
The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, unquote. That came from Benjamin Franklin. Franklin certainly never professed Christianity. Maybe they didn't want any guidance from God on this because they didn't want to know what he was going to say about it. <laughs> they were afraid of his answer. Well, let's look at a little bit farther. Benjamin Franklin got a second for prayer. Then Alexander Hamilton protested, and he said that calling in the clergy would lead to fears in the public that they were embarrassments and dissension within the convention. It was also reported that Hamilton opposed prayer at the convention because he would, could not, would not and could not support intervention into the proceedings of a foreign power or aid, unquote. Foreign power or aid. That's the way Alexander Hamilton referred to it. Franklin would write on the failure of his proposal in his own biography. Now, I think this is extremely revealing. And I quote, the convention, except for three or four persons, thought prayers unnecessary, unquote. So you got 55 people there. You got three or four who thought prayers were necessary. Is that a Christian document? doesn't sound like it to me. And I think uh, this is an important topic. And I think at one time in my life that I, I probably believed it was, or I believed that God created America for certain reasons to uh, protect Israel. And we can go down another rabbit hole with that. But I don't believe that any longer. I don't believe that if, if you read how God views uh, nations, they're nothing to him. You know, his, he is the king of this world, and his constitution is his word, Jesus Christ. Well, Craig, let's go to another point of relevance, and that is in 1787, 12 of the 13 colonies or states, whatever you want to call them, had Christian religious oaths written into their state constitution. That's 12 of 13. I think that's a majority, even with the, uh, the new math. I think that's a majority. And I've got a couple of them I will read for you to give you an idea about what was in those state constitutions. But Article 6, Section 3 of the Constitution not only did away with religious oaths in the federal government, but in the states as well. Now, the ramifications of that, I believe, are huge, but that's my opinion. To serve in the Congress under the Articles of Confederation, a man had to be appointed by his state legislature. Now, here we get to the importance. To get to the U.S. Congress, you had to be appointed by your state legislature. So to be appointed by your state legislature, you had to take this oath. Now, I will read you Delaware's oath, and it was in Article 22 of the Delaware Constitution. And it says, every person who shall be chosen a member of either house or appointed to any office or place of trust before taking his seat or entering upon the execution of his office shall take the following oath or affirmation. If conscientiously scrupulous of taking an oath, he will say, to wit, I, blank, will bear true allegiance to the Delaware state, submit to its constitution and laws, and do not act wittingly whereby the freedom thereof may be prejudiced, and also make and subscribe the following declaration, to wit, that I, blank, do profess faith in God the Father, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore, and I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration, and all officers shall also take an oath of auspice. Now, 12 of the 13 colonies or states had similar oaths. Article 6, Clause 3 eliminated those. Now, if it, the men at the Constitutional Convention, if they said, okay, we're going to uh, eliminate an oath to any religion, 
If 12 of the 13 states had an oath to the Christian religion, what were the people at the Constitution eliminating? So they're eliminating God. If you read Article 6, Clause 3, you will see they not only eliminated that oath in the federal government, but in the state governments as well. And they had to do it in the state governments because if you will remember before the um, totally uh, unconstitutional 17th Amendment, the senators were elected by the state legislatures. So they would have had to take that state oath. All right. So here, now let's go back to Luther Martin. Again, the gentleman who spoke out against slavery and who is, there's nothing anywhere that would say that he was ever a Christian. But what did he have to say about this Article 6, Clause 3? Now we have to remember Luther Martin was there. This was not an afterthought. Luther Martin was there. And he said, the part of the system which provides that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States was adopted by a great majority of the convention and with very little debate. However, there were some members so unfashionable as to think that a belief of the existence of a deity and of a state of future rewards and punishments would be some security for the good conduct of our rulers, and that in a Christian country it would be at least decent to hold out some distinction between the professors of Christianity and downright infidelity or paganism, unquote. Now, why does Luther Martin, who opposed the Constitution, sound more like a Christian than the Christians did? It's a question that I ask every day about, about Christians these days, too. And so it's actually something that really drove our, uh, our project is because it was something that I witnessed so much during 2016 that I couldn't believe how Christians were behaving and following somebody like Donald Trump. And it's a great point of frustration for me with Christians. I always go back to that. Why I mentioned that quote from Gandhi. There are people who are not professing Christians that are going to act more Christ-like than even Christians. And it's very sad to me. And it's extremely disappointing. Well, Craig, do you remember the comedian back uh, several decades ago named Flip Wilson? Uh, it sounds familiar. Well, I always loved Flip Wilson. I thought he did a great deal. But uh, you just made me think with that Gandhi quote. I thought of it before, but I thought about uh, Flip Wilson. Uh, when uh, he was doing a skit and someone said, uh, well, uh, where are you heading? And he had on, you know, the toga. And he said, well, I'm heading down to the Coliseum. I'm going down to watch the Christians and the lions. And the guy who was with him, I can't even remember his name. He said, well, said, uh, what do you think? Uh, who do you think will win? And Flip Wilson said, well, you know, I'm not sure. He said, those Christians got a great coach, but their team is shaky. <laughs> that is perfect. Yeah. I, that is perfect. That uh, <laughs> popped back into my head. I thought, you know, if that doesn't nail it about as uh, well as any anyone could uh, possibly do it. But also, Craig, another thing I think of is if you ever heard of Henry Abbott, A-B-B-O-T, Again, I think so. The name sounds familiar. Okay. Henry Abbott was a delegate to the North Carolina Ratification Convention. Now, stop and think about this. This is 1788. Henry Abbott says that if we adopt this Constitution with Article 6, Clause 3, we will find one day our government inhabited with pagans, non believers, and Muslims. Imagine that. How could anyone see that in 1788? Well, they've had to have seen it somewhere before. Well, you know, to me, the first time I read that, Craig, I got chilled. And I thought, how was a man able to see that far into the future? But then when you stop and think about it, now people will say, well, you, we shouldn't, you know, commit an oath to a religion. But that would be committing an oath to the principles, not the religion itself, but to the principles. And why in any endeavor that we encounter today, why would you want someone who would not want to 
enter all of their dealings with you with honesty and with respect. It doesn't seem to matter to folks anymore, or I don't even know if it mattered then either. It doesn't sound like it did. You know, the other thing, you know, that I brought up and I, you know, I don't want to take too much time here. I know we're, we're uh, getting uh, close here for our time, but I stop and think about these people, you know, at the ratification conventions and, and, you know, and probably the greatest fraud that was ever been perpetrated on a people was the first three words of the U.S. Constitution, the preamble, we, the people. Now, when you read that, everyone thinks that the people were involved in 1787. Do you know how many people lived in the 13 states in 1787? 3.75 million would be close. So about 1% of what we have in in the U.S. today. Now, the first thing we have to remember is about 700,000 of those were slaves, and they couldn't vote. Women couldn't vote. Men who didn't own property couldn't vote. In the 1788 elections for ratification convention delegates, how many people actually cast a vote? Somewhere, depending on the figures, they vary somewhere between 65 and 80,000 people. 65 to 80,000 people out of 3 million. And you had 55 people uh, deciding this for 3.7 million people. Exactly. Well, you know, I also think of when we're going to talk about this, Greg, we also have to go back to the words of George Washington when he was writing to John Jay. And he told John Jay that the common people, and I'm paraphrasing, he said the common people don't have the good sense to know what's best for them, and therefore we must uh, inject our imperial dignity. What do we got now? Like 350 million people living in America now, and we've got 330, and you've got less than half of the country deciding for you how you're going to live your life. Exactly. Things haven't changed from 1787 to 2021. The names have changed, the faces have changed, but the idea of government, those people went to the Constitutional Convention to create a system. Now, you would think if you created a system to protect the rights of the people, why would you vote against a Bill of Rights, Craig? The delegates to the Constitutional Convention voting as states, not as individuals, voting as states unanimously rejected a Bill of Rights. Unanimously. Because it doesn't protect their interest. And then here we are today. Where, Craig, do you think we could find a group of Christians, 55, if we put them together, who would want to write a governing document which rejected the rights of the people totally? Do you think that's possible? Would you say, okay, we want to form a government, but we don't care about the rights of the people? Would, would they all agree? I would I would hope not, but I'm, I'm skeptical, <laughs> to be honest with you. I understand, but would that be an act of a Christian? Oh, no. I, I mean, not at all. I mean, if, if you're a Christian and you know that you were born with God-given rights, and I, I talk about this all the time, that the reason I take my liberty so seriously is because I believe that Jesus created me with that liberty. And I don't, I would not, I would not be a part of a group that would want to restrict the rights of people. But they did. They voted not to have a Bill of Rights. They didn't want a Bill of Rights, said they didn't need them. But they made provisions for slavery. And more importantly, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, the very first power they gave to Congress was the power of unlimited taxation from unlimited sources. Luther Martin spoke against that with all of the passion that could be, and he was actually heckled at the Constitutional Convention for speaking against unlimited taxes from unlimited sources. Now, is that an act of Christianity to tax your brother? Not even in the least. Well, you know, I mentioned in the beginning the one verse from the New Testament that was repeated throughout the founding of the country. I would like to quote that. And then ask you, was this represented at the Constitutional Convention of 1787? And here is verse one. It says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty of which Christ has made us free 
and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, unquote. Do you think the Constitutional Convention worked toward that end, or did they work on a document which would protect the financial interest of the people who were there? Uh, the latter. They certainly didn't have our liberty in mind. Well, I hope we've covered that subject for you, Craig. I, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I think so. I think this has been a great conversation. I think we could probably go on for hours about this, actually. Maybe we could do another episode and, and continue on. Well, I would uh, entertain that at some time. I know you have an awful lot to do. You're pursuing a lot of things. I just uh, want to uh, congratulate you on your efforts. Uh, you're doing uh, yeoman's work, my friend. I really appreciate that. It's exhausting sometimes, but I, I really appreciate the words of encouragement because it, keep, it, it keeps me going. And, and people that send us messages and stuff, too, that's really encouraging as well, because sometimes I feel like I'm just speaking into a microphone with nobody listening. But then I hear we get messages constantly from folks that are the new listeners to the show that reach out and really appreciate what we're doing, because what we're doing with the Bad Roman is not something that is talked about very much. Sometimes I feel like I've developed some sort of echo chamber with this. And I don't want to do that because when you get out in the world and you're talking to people individually, like if I if, if I sit down and talk to folks one on one about what we just talked about, they look at you outside of their eye like you're crazy. I've lost friends because of my new beliefs on some of this stuff. And and that's OK. I mean, it's it is what it is. I'm not I told one on one time I said I cannot unlearn what I've learned. And I, I would hope that you would want me to be honest with you with what I've learned, even if it hurts your feelings. And that's not what I'm trying to do is hurt people's feelings. I'm just trying. There's things that I've learned that I think people need to hear. And I think you mentioned in uh, in our first the first time we talked on the show that when, when you were learning things about the Constitution, then people would turn around and run from you like their hair were on fire. And it still happens today. But the the words of encouragement from you and the folks that are uh, listening that that continue to send us messages, man, really, really, really mean a lot to me and that everybody working on the project because it's something that that's the reason we did it. Somebody asked me because I'm pretty blunt and I'm pretty bold about what I believe. And somebody asked me, said, is, is that working out for you? And I said, I don't know. I said, what I do know, though, is it's causing people to think. And that's all I really want people to do is think. Think about what you what you believe before and compare it to what's actually happening. And if you can get one person to think, they can get somebody else to think. And it's just it's like a domino effect. I think, you know, we may not see it in our lifetime, but we have to think about what we're leaving for our children and their children and so on. At least we can say, and I know you've been doing this for a number of years, but at least we can say when our time comes that at least we tried. At least we said something. At least we stood up for something. What's that country song? If I... Uh, if you don't stand for something, I think it was Aaron Tipton. He said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And I think it's very true. Well, man, I appreciate your time. I really enjoy speaking with you and I really enjoy our, our messaging and stuff. And I, I hate that I don't have a lot of time sometimes with work and all, but I really do enjoy our conversations and I, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. You are want to give you some words of encouragement. Keep doing what you're doing because people are listening. And like I said, people, when they heard you for the first time on our show, they really reacted positively to it, which I didn't surprise me. I just wanted to tell you, uh, I uh, have a real, real problem, and that is I don't know how to quit. <laughs> That's good, though. That's not a problem. <laughs> well, some people think it's a problem, I, but uh, yeah, I, I do not know how to quit, and I, I can't quit. So, you know, uh, I, I am thankful for that. And I appreciate the opportunity to come discuss this subject with you. It's uh, something that certainly needs to uh, have more discussion than it gets. I agree. I completely agree. Well, tell us about your show and where they can find you if uh, people did not catch our first episode. Okay. Well, I right now I'm just doing two uh, programs and uh, both of them on Revolution Radio, Studio A. One of them is at Friday at noon where I go into a forensic, uh, what would we call it? A forensic autopsy of the Constitution. We go into word by word or, or clause by clause. We go into the discussion around that. And we also deal with the, the characters of the founding generation that most people have never heard of. You know, when you ask people to name uh, three founders, they can usually come across pretty well. But you ask them to name 20, 
and they really have a problem. So we try to bring some of these people like Luther Martin and Henry Abbott and uh, other people out to the forefront uh, where their contribution was just as important as the other. And on uh, at 6 p.m. Eastern on Rev Radio, I do a program called Addicted to Our Own Destruction. So uh, thank you for allowing me to uh, talk about those two programs, Craig. Yes, sir. And both times are Eastern, right? That is correct, sir. Okay, great. Well, Mike, I really appreciate your time and I really want to have you back on at some point. And well, I'm sure we'll find some, another topic to talk about or we can just continue this one as well. But I want to let you get back to your day and, and so you can prepare for your next show. Thank you, my friend. Have a great day. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com. Thank you.